Uh, good morning or good afternoon from wherever you're joining us and welcome to this webinar where, where we'll be talking about advancing equity for dual language learners in early childhood systems by identifying their language needs and characteristics. I'm Margie McHugh, Director of the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, and I'll be moderating today's webcast. Uh, before we get going, <clears throat> just a few quick points about uh, call logistics. You can see on the screen there that if you have any trouble accessing the webinar, uh, please call the number there, 202-266-1929, or email events at migrationpolicy.org. We have folks standing by who can help you, uh, hopefully, with any uh, any technical difficulties. Also, during, this, uh, during the webcast, there's not voice Q&A, so please use the chat function during the webinar. Um, you can direct questions to specific panelists, but best um, if you send them to the host, because then we'll sort of distribute them um, uh, as we uh, as we go along. And um, and please just kind of write in real time. That'll be helpful um, also for us, so that we we get a chance to um, you know to line up um, figuring out responses. Um, you also can see there that you can write to events at migrationpolicy.org or um, tweet at migrationpolicy um, or um, hashtag MPI discuss. Also, um, lots of you usually ask if the, um, the slides and audio from the webinar will be available. <clears throat> I think it'll take a tiny bit of time um, to get it up, uh, maybe by tomorrow, but, uh, but definitely it's available. It will be available on our, on our um, events page. So with that, I'll just say, um, I already said who I was. You'll be hearing today also from Maki Park, uh, who has been with our center for many years. She's senior policy analyst for early education and care um, and uh, co-author of two of the pieces that we'll be talking about today. Delio Pompa, uh, who we are very lucky to have for a good number of years now as our senior fellow for education policy. Uh, many of you know her from her many, many years uh, in uh, uh, positions related to English learner and dual language, language learner uh, success. And I'm delighted that Patricia Lozano, Executive Director of Early Edge California, is joining us. Uh, we've been in contact with her and her team for quite a while now about all the great work that they're moving forward in California. And so we're delighted to uh, to be able to have some of that uh, be uh, be a little more visible to folks around the country uh, via the webinar today, and also uh, be a way of showing what it looks like in practice to try and make uh, some of the things we're talking about happen. Uh, so I'll just say quickly, in terms of um, in terms of our center, for any of you who aren't that familiar with us, the um, we focus a lot on education and training pipeline issues. And I think of note for uh, for the issues we're talking about today. Um, I just want to flag that back in April, we released a pretty large analysis that looked at characteristics of immigrant and native-born parents of children ages zero to four and five to ten. We had created a series of of uh, fact sheets around those, and this was partly in response to what we were seeing uh, in terms of COVID's impact on families that uh, families that were attempting to help their 
uh, young children or young school age children get online and where parents were expected to be there to sort of curate and manage their children's interaction with programs and try and raise some of the equity issues that have been longstanding for those of you who have been uh, in the field for a long time uh, working with immigrant populations, but uh, but really were spotlighted uh, with the pandemic. And I think some of those issues and that data are really relevant from an equity perspective um, to what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so in terms of today, I'll just say um, it, I think it's a pretty, um, pretty clear uh, kind of uh, division of labor, if you will. Um, so I'm just going to do a quick overview of the DLL data analysis and resources that accompany uh, the two reports that we'll be talking about today. Um, then Maki will talk about the current DLL policy landscape, um, dipping into and taking examples from the uh, report that you see there on the screen, taking stock of DLL identification um, and uh, strengthening policies and procedures that she and Melissa Lazarine from our team uh, co-authored. And uh, then Delia will uh, uh, take the baton and talk about the DLL identification framework elements. That's the second, uh, second of the two reports that, were, that we uh, released and are focusing on today. And then, as I said um, earlier, that Patricia will um, really give some uh, some real life examples in terms of what's going on in California right now and how these things are um, how these issues are are being addressed. So just to um, just to get started, um, these are going to be very few slides. Don't be nervous if you're trying to <laughs> figure out um, things in detail. We totally expect to be um, at your service, um, you know, as you as you start to dig into the data, it's it was in an unusual format that we released everything in. We didn't. It takes it's hundreds and hundreds of pages for our communications team to try and lay out and do fact sheets state by state. And so, even though this analysis covers the United States and all fifty states plus DC. Um, we didn't wrap them into fact sheets. We're, we're releasing them um, as the actual Excel tables. So that's what I'm going to walk you through um, for the next few slides. So up on our website, you'll find an interactive data tool that'll just show you state by state uh, top line data for DLL children. You can use an age frame of zero to eight or zero to five. Then Excel tables are available that will give you the full uh, full analysis by state um, for children, either ages um, zero to five or zero to eight, and then the the tables show it by D, show this by DLL status and also broken out by race and ethnicity. So I'll say a little bit about more about all of this. The reason this next thing is highlighted is because um, the way to get to the Excel tables. It's available on either of the web pages for the two reports that we're talking about today. If you go to the map, all the bitlies were there on the on the earlier um, session outline page. Um, if you go there, the the way to get the tables is what you see highlighted right here. There's there's this block text that lets you click on either children ages zero to five or zero to eight, and that's where you'll get the full analysis. So when you open up the analysis, um, you'll have a table that looks like this from left to right. 
um, it's a much longer table going down than this, but you'll be able to see uh, this is for the US. If you click on your state, you can see it for your state and it'll give you your total um, number of children, either zero to five or zero to eight. Um, I'm just using zero to five here. You'll see totals for DLLs and non-DLLs, and then you'll see the breakout by race, um, by, by race and ethnic subgroups. So nationally, just looking at these numbers, DLLs are 33% of all children ages zero to five. And then the shares of DLLs among Latino, Black, AAPI, and white children are the numbers you see there, 76%, 15, 74, and 11% respectively. So um, I, I want to say that part of why you're seeing the table like this, even with the race and ethnic subgroups, is we had such great feedback from folks we were working with, um, uh, key leaders in ECEC system, ECEC and, and immigrant integration uh, policy issues from about 12 states who gave us extensive feedback on how to set up the tables and what would be useful to them. So many thanks to all of them for um, helping us figure out what would be most useful. And I'll just say, you know, we have a lot more data than you're gonna see here. Um, right now, I'm just going to do two of the slides that'll give you a sense of how you can use the data um, to address equity issues and, and in a sense, uh, put forward the rationale for equity sensitive indicators um, in terms of how, um, how DLLs and children from immigrant families are being, um, uh, how their needs are being addressed in ECEC systems. So when you look at the race and ethnic subgroups here, um, first, you can start by seeing that at least half of DLLs lived in low-income households as compared to only 38% of non-DLLs. Uh, but then if you look at the race-ethnic subgroups, Latino and AAPI children ages 0 to 5 whose families are low-income, 80% um, of those um, low-income um, uh, children are DLLs in both of those subgroups. And so that's where... Uh, we just we we're feel we feel like our thought bubble, I guess I would say, looking at this and the next slide, are that poverty is is widely understood and demonstrated by decades of research to impact children's trajectories, and it's a key driver of investments that are made in ECEC systems and services. So, having data like this, whether your state is looking at the issue from a race ethnic subgroup. Um, point of view, or if they're strictly looking at it as a DLL um, issue, either way, connecting key issues like this that are completely proven in research um, to be challenge factors are ways that then a conversation can begin about whether um, these, these children and their families are being both proportionately served, but also served with services that are responsive to their needs. And so then here's um, here's just the other um, the other slide of many we could um, use uh, from the analysis, but another another challenge factor that is widely demonstrated in research, partly because of of course educational attainment is closely tied to earnings um, for families. And so here, just with the national snapshot, DLLs are only thirty percent of all children ages zero to five, but parents of DLLs are 61% of all parents of children zero to five without high school diploma or equivalent. So you'll find that these numbers are 
um, you know, are, are going are gonna to be even more pronounced for many of the of states with large numbers of immigrants and refugees. Uh, and then you can see by looking at the race and ethnic subgroup data um, that uh, DLL parents are more than twice as likely to lack a high school diploma or equivalent compared to non-DLL parents in the Latino, AAPI, and white parent subgroups. So as I've been saying, um, this is really just a, a quick look at kind of to give you a sense of what the table looks like, table, uh, tables look like, and how to think about um, equity issues that are evident uh, within them. And we are very ready for lots of questions and um, any, uh, we also have a lot more data because of all the conversations we had with our key state level colleagues around the analysis. So we have the, we have more data available, I would even say, um, than what you'll see um, online. So please get in touch because we do expect that systems are different, what they're looking at um, can be different. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we just like to hear what it is you might need and, um, and think that we, um, we should be able to respond with more than you see there online. So with that, let's get into these two great reports that are about the um, massive equity issue we wanted to talk about today, which is um, we, for equity purposes, need to be identifying um, English language, sorry, dual language learners as a, uh, as a first step to um, even beginning to have equity conversations around them and their needs. So with that, Maki, over to you to talk about the, uh, the lay of the land currently in terms of what we found uh, with this report. Thank you, Margie. And thank you so much to everyone for joining us for this conversation today. So I wanted to begin this section by just setting the stage and talking about the need for identification of DLLs, really building off of the data that Margie just walked us through, but that really remains relatively invisible for many states and systems in terms of these key needs and characteristics of DLLs and their families across the country. The problem that we're really hoping to examine here is the fact that if you were to ask a state leader or administrator in early childhood, how their state is doing in reaching and serving dual language learners equitably today. Most of them couldn't have a good informed answer for you because standardized policies to identify and track this population at a state systems level simply do not exist. Even the very definition of what makes a DLL a DLL varies significantly both across states and can even vary within a state such that a young child might be identified as a DLL in one early learning program but then walk into, say, a childcare center where they might not be. And that's a problem in terms of making sure that that child is receiving appropriate services and home language support, and that both the staff and program that are serving that child, but also the system that's serving that child can be responsive to potential needs and have an understanding of ways that programs could be improved to better serve those needs. And I'll talk a little bit about what we think is important in terms of really settling on a standardized and strengths-based definition of a DLL in a moment. But back to the question of need, research really makes a strong case for the importance of early childhood programs for all children, but also for the fact that DLLs can disproportionately benefit from high quality programs that support their well-being. And yet research also shows us that DLLs are by and large underserved by programs like childcare subsidies, home visiting programs, and even early intervention services. 
Children living in families where a language other than English is spoken are facing significant structural barriers that prevent them from accessing critical services. And this is important because of what Margie just showed us that in fact, DLLs are disproportionately represented among low income target populations who can benefit enormously from these programs. But if state data systems aren't capturing this information, administrators and policymakers have no way of knowing where these gaps are and how to address them. Essentially, it's impossible to achieve equity without an understanding of existing disparities. And our current understanding of DLL experiences and of effective programming for DLLs is highly limited without this information. So turning now to the benefits of DLL identification, and here I'll go back to this issue of definition. It's so important to underline when we talk about DLL identification that there should not be a stigma attached to being identified as a DLL. We want to define DLLs from a strengths-based perspective. I also want to highlight that DLLs are not equivalent to English learners or Ls as we refer to them in the K-12 system. English learners are defined by their lack of proficiency in English. DLLs in early childhood should be defined by their potential to develop as multilingual and multiliterate. Every young child is developing their language skills. This is not about a deficit. DLLs are defined by their language environment and language exposure to their meaningful exposure to a language other than English in the home, which means that they're bringing the asset of another language, another culture into their classrooms and into their programs. It's true, yes, that many DLLs may go on to later also be identified as Ls to ensure that they receive appropriate support in K-12 schools, but some DLLs may never receive that designation. But that doesn't mean that that information about their home language is irrelevant. So then why is it important for us to gather information about young children's language profiles and experiences? We know that the trajectory of a DLL's development can look different from the trajectory of a monolingual child's development. But our assessments, our curricula, our professional development approaches do not currently reflect this reality for the most part. And most programs are not integrating what research tells us about DLLs. Having this clear understanding of a child's language experiences, the language spoken at home, the languages the child hears, and the languages the child uses in different circumstances and contexts, the language goals that parents and caretakers have for their children, all of this information that's important for early childhood staff to know in order to best support children and families, and also to have a full understanding of their identity. And having this information available at a systems level helps to teach us what kinds of services are most effective, what kinds of additional supports are needed, how we can improve program relevance, and just generally grows the evidence base and information to support this large and growing population of young children during this important period in their development. A home language survey that's sent home upon kindergarten entry, while of course so important, is not enough. It's too late as a first step in identification in that five years of a child's formative period of language development have already passed. It's also not an authentic assessment in that parents may be hesitant and rightfully skeptical of how this information will be used if they disclose this information. So I'm going to shift over now to talking about some bright spots that do exist before Delia talks about our proposed DLL identification framework to address these issues. So as I said earlier, no systematic DLL identification process exists at federal or state levels. However, some states are collecting information about home language through PK programs, especially in cases where their state pre-K is aligned with their K-12 systems. And this is an important step. 
In Illinois, for example, legislation requires all school districts to identify English learners ages three to five by their first day attending its preschool program using a home language survey that's been translated into 39 languages. And programs that do serve 20 or more Ls who speak the same home language are required to provide programming that supports both their English language development as well as home language development. There are other states that also require districts to survey their children enrolling in pre-K in this way, but I do want to note that these processes are limited to their state pre-K programs and that the definition of Ls is significantly narrower than the definition we're proposing for DLLs and is intended primarily to identify those whose English proficiency is limited. In terms of taking this more comprehensive approach toward DLLs that focuses more on language exposure and home language support, I wanted to highlight two promising practices. First is New York's Emergent Multilingual Learner Language Profile Protocol, which is a comprehensive procedure that collects much of the kinds of information that I've been speaking about through a standardized approach. This is a great model to turn to to get an example of a comprehensive language profile and quality information about children and families' language use that could be a great reference point for folks looking to improve their processes. However, its use is not currently mandatory across the state. Another initiative I wanted to mention that would be a great resource to turn to is the Fresno Language Project in California. This is a local level initiative taking a really exciting approach in identifying DLLs across a range of early childhood services through a cross agency approach. The Fresno Unified School District coordinates this project, which includes a family language and interest interview tool to really facilitate a partnership between early childhood staff and families to gain an authentic understanding of language use and aspirations for each child, and to draw this assessment and identification process across the early childhood years, because we know that language use is constantly evolving. So I hope that folks who are interested in exploring more about what this could look like in your states um, will explore more of this information in the report. For now, I'm going to hand things over to Dahlia. Thank you very much, Maki. Uh, it's evident from Maki's description that uh, efforts uh, to date have been small but there is a lot of interest in this particular topic. One important step is for our field to come together to define what DLL identification should look like and how it should happen. To that end, we along with, uh, I have to thank also, uh, along with experts and practitioners in the field that we consulted with, um, have developed a framework for an ideal system of identification. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to be very brief in going over the elements and some of the considerations, but I urge you to take a look at our publication that's listed on this slide for a more robust understanding of what we took into account and what this system might look like in practice. So, going to the elements, there are four elements, and it took us some time to boil it down to these four elements, but we wanted to get down to what was critical. And I have to say, as we talk about all four of these elements, um, parents, parents, parents are important in how we carry out this framework and how we would carry out identification of DLLs. The first element is identifying young children who have exposure to a language other than English. Here we're talking about exposure in terms of hearing a language, speaking a language, seeing a uh, language in written form. And we're talking about uh, both languages, looking at uh, 
both or more languages of children are exposed to them. Uh, the target language, English, and the home language. Um, we're also talking uh, a more about a more expansive um, definition of home environment because for some children, home environment for much of the day is with another caregiver. So that should be taken into account also. And as I said earlier, it is really important as we look at identifying children who have exposure to a language other than English, that parents be involved. They are our chief informers in addition to the children about what language um, children are exposed to. They are also important in this process because they have a language goals for their children. And as part of the instructional um, program that's developing for these children, we need to know where parents are when it comes to language, what they value and what they want to uh, schools to focus on. A second, the second element of this framework is collecting information about DLL's language environment and their experiences. Here we're looking at what languages are they exposed to? Who do they hear it from? Uh, how often do they hear it? What are the strengths? What are their strengths in these different languages? Uh, what are the parent goals? Again, parent goals comes into view here because um, for many, many immigrants and for parents who speak a language other than English, the fact that they are trying to maintain a home language is very important. We often have not had that crossover into institutional settings. We have not been able to respond to it well. And it's important that we understand the language environment that children are coming from and what their parents want for them. Uh, the third element here is obtaining in-depth information about DLL's individual language skills. Here I might pause. We are talking, when we talk about DLL identification framework, starting with children at birth and trying to, dependent on what institutions they're connected with, begin to identify their exposure to language. We would, in an ideal situation, be building a portfolio on each child. So as that child is going through early care systems, uh, we begin to see how language is developing for them. So this third element, obtaining in-depth information about DLL's individual language skills, really probably comes if we're doing this ideally when the child is in some sort of formalized program. Um, this is often the time that children might begin to be identified as limited English proficient or being English learners. Um, uh, this is where we begin to be uh, cognizant of where the, the student, the child will transfer to as a student and begin learning. So here we would begin to look at not just the broad language skills, but what their English skills are like in particular. Uh, here we're looking not only as oral at for informal oral language skills, but at formal pre-literacy skills also in both languages. It's important all along that we're talking about both languages. We are building a language profile, and I can't stress strongly enough what Maki said. This is the difference between DLLs and English learners. We're looking at their entire language profile, not just their English profile. We want to know at this point, how do they use languages? How are they exposed to them? Do they know songs in, in uh, the different languages? Do they, how do they count? Uh, how do they interact with other students? How do they inter, uh, interact with a caregiver? What language do they use? Um, 
we begin to look at this, uh, these processes as they begin to relate to the, the stronger sort of um, literacy skills, the more formal literacy skills as children grow older and their development begins to be more um, focused on academic skills. Finally, once we have all this information, how do we make the relevant information accessible to programs and policymakers? And that's the final element of an identification framework. This information can't stay with a teacher, a parent. It has to be accessible to programs and policymakers across the board. Uh, today, unfortunately, uh, many children might be identified as a DLL and a Head Start program, but generally that information is not passed on to a preschool program, say in a public school system. There are gaps in what information we have about children when they enter the formal K-12 system uh, or when they transfer between early childhood and care programs uh, before formal school. So we need this information for many different purposes. We need it for instructional purposes, uh, which I, I have mentioned and it seems to be the most evident to us as educators and caretakers, but we also need it for other purposes. We need to make this information accessible to policymakers so that we receive the appropriate funding for the, the programs we need for these children. We need to need it for census um, um, purposes. So we know how many children we're talking about. We need it for planning information across different programs, health programs, educational programs, care, care programs, uh, programs that are two generation programs for parents and their children. So all this information needs to go somewhere that we can do something with it. Currently, that doesn't exist anywhere. So these are the basic four elements that you, I think, will agree uh, uh, carry a large load. There is a lot to do to get to this point. In order to get to this point, though, one of the other pieces of information that we collected along with caregivers and experts is that we need some basic, very basic um, systems in place before we can set up the identification system that we talked about. First of all, we need comprehensive state early childhood data systems. These data systems would exist to share information across programs. We, as we talked, we realized we needed to have unique identifiers so that you could follow children across programs uh, and track not only their skills, but their uh, development needs. Uh, we would need, second of all, adequate professional development and training for those who are working with these children. Assessing language, understanding language, um, tracking language is a skill we don't acquire um, just naturally. It's a skill that has to be taught and requires a lot of professional development and training in order to do this. And that is something that we must have in order to get us to the point where we understand children's language across the board and how to respond to it. Finally, and most critically, perhaps in some ways, because we don't have this, is we need culturally relevant and age appropriate early childhood assessments especially at the birth to five level. These assessments exist at the K-12 level in some preschool um, uh, programs. Um, and some people would argue that even those are not age appropriate or culturally relevant. So we really need to take stock of what's available to us at the earlier years, how we account for both languages in collecting this information, and how we are taking care not to label students 
but to see where they are in their development so that we have that information for the purposes I mentioned earlier, for tracking kids, for providing funding, for planning good instructional programs. So where are we today when it comes to this and how do we create policy that allows us to do this? First of all, as we talked, as we thought about how this would take place, we recognize that across the board, the context is different in every state. And even within states, the context is different across um, cities and across programs even. There are socio-political differences that will allow us to do take steps in one state that we couldn't take in another. There are states who are taking different paths toward the early childhood program, therefore putting in place an identification uh, system with its full elements uh, might take a different timeline or a different path to get to. One way to look at this in your own city or state is to figure out where you are. What elements of the of the four elements do you have in place? And I am certain that all of you are saying, but we don't have any of those in full bloom. We don't, but we have a place to start in many places. Uh, Maki gave you some examples and we're going to hear another one soon, but we need to look at what the contextual variables are and how we build on those. The second step in policy, developing policy opportunities is to figure out where we are from a policy perspective by develop, looking at creating a policy scan, implementing a policy scan of what policies already exist in your state. And then building on that, what steps do you want to take? There, you could take legislative uh, steps. You could take administrative steps. We can build on local efforts. Uh, we can look at pilot programs. We can look at funding opportunities. All of this is, is our, our opportunities, and they're going to be different in every state depending on what is the lowest hanging fruit. This is a huge task for us, and we really need to start not necessarily small, but what is there for us to work on. To that end, I would give you one tip right now, which is to take advantage of the current funding opportunities. The American Rescue Plan that many school districts, all school districts and uh, state agencies are receiving money from uh, would allow us to take some steps. There is a big equity focus within that American Rescue Plan, so it's important that we take advantage of that. A lot of districts and states are building two generation approaches. Here's a way to start and inject some of the uh, steps uh, for developing these supporting systems that would support identif identification um, process along with all the elements. Um, the other thing we can do is look at existing programs and how we build and improve upon. It may be small steps, but there are steps that are going to lead us to the bigger picture in the long run. And I think it's important to recognize that this task is a large one and we have a lot to build as we get to it. As I say this, I'm going to turn you over to Patricia Lozano, the Executive Director of Early Edge in California, where uh, um, I think a significant and large step is taking place, and we'll turn to her so she can hear from us. We can, she can hear from us and we can hear from her. Patricia? Hi, thank you so much. Um, and um, good morning and good afternoon. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, MPI for inviting me today, and I'm really excited to share um, all the good things that are happening in California. 
Um, so first, um, wanted to talk a bit, a lot of, a, a little bit of, about Early Edge California. We are an advocacy organization um, in California, and our goal is to advocate for policy changes and investments in high um, quality early learning experiences for all children, birth to age eight, with a really um, a great focus on DLL, supporting DLL uh, families and, and the workforce. So, um, you know, I wanted to start to give you a little bit of background about California and why, why we really, really care about and focus on DLLs. As, as Margie um, shared at the beginning of the presentation, DLLs um, are a large growing population of children in the US, as you can see with the data. And specifically in California, um, we think that there are around 59% uh, of children birth to age five who are DLLs, and 50% of those children are in-state preschools, and also 48% live in low-income families. So, so as you can see, there's a great need to support DLLs. So based on that data, you know, um, we have been doing a lot of things um, around policy. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background and history of, um, of where we are now and what happened before and how we got here. So first, I um, wanted to talk about Proposition 58, um, because believe it or not, California was an English-only state um, until 2016 when voters passed Proposition 58 which paved the way uh, for bilingual instruction in California. So now we can have bilingual programs in California, and that has helped us a lot to, to really advocate for more funding and for, to have more bilingual uh, programs available for all kids in California. Then we have, uh, we have the California English Learner Roadmap, um, which was developed in 2017 and which is an asset-based state policy to support DLLs and English learners from early childhood through 12th grade in California public schools. So this is a great tool for schools to really um, learn and adopt policies to support um, both DLLs and English learners in school districts. Then we had the Global California 2030, which uh, was an initiative that started in 2018 and you know the main goals uh, for this was to double the bilingual the number of bilingual teachers, to have uh, um, more kids uh, um, get the state seal of biliteracy um, when they graduate high school, and also to um, quadruple the number of dual immersion programs by 2030. So as you can see, this is a very bold plan, and um, and it has been supported by uh, the superintendent of instruction. Um, and it, you know, we hope that the, it keeps growing and we can get to all these amazing goals. And last but not least, um, we have the California Master Plan for Early Learning and Care um, that was released in December of 2020. And this, um, you know, had this this plan um, had a really really strong focus on DLLs. And the best part of it, it was that. DLLs were um, mentioned and included in all, most all recommendations um, across the early learning and early learning and system and care. Um, so it was not just a section for DLLs, but it was across. So for every area, um, there was something about DLLs. So um, some of the recommendations included, you know, how to include DLLs in quality efforts. How do we really build strong 
um, training programs and uh, preparation for teachers. And also, uh, which is very important related to what we're talking today, uh, the importance of DLL identification as a critical first step uh, in moving um, other key DLL recommendations forward. So, um, as, as we have heard today, this is the first step. It's so, so important to know how many DLLs we need to, to serve and also for us as advocates will help us to make a case for additional funding. So now I wanna um, move to uh, uh, and talk about a little bit about um, a, a bill that we are sponsoring, AB 1363, and it is um, basically the main goal um, of it is to develop um, a, a DLL identification process in California. So, um, so as you can see, we have great co-sponsors, um, you know, uh, in, including the Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman, Investment Project California, Californians Together, CABE. So we have a great group uh, of partners to and and, and to really uh, think about how to best. Uh, structure and identification process. Uh, this bill is also supported by the California Legislative Women Caucus. And um, basically what we want to establish a DLL definition and process uh, for the California State Preschool Program. So our goal is to start with the with the preschool, the state preschool program, and then expand to zero to three. This will be just the first step. Um, in terms of where the bill is, it passed out the assembly and has moved to the Senate. So um, hopefully it will um, also uh, move um, from the Senate and, and get, get signed at some point. But uh, if you wanna learn more about AB uh, 1363, you can, there's the, the, the webpage and we, we, we update it um, as we go. So super exciting and um, you know, it, totally connected to everything that we sh was shared today, and hopefully we can get that process established. So, um, you know, we know who are we serving and we can get more resources for families, for schools and for teachers. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, other projects that are happening in California um, to give you a little bit of context. So in addition to the bill, the policy, the master plan, and all the other uh, policies that, that are that I talked about, there is um, the first five California DLL pilot study and expansion phase. So this study um, has, uh, you know, has a few phases. Um, one that was a background study that already happened and basically described DLL policies and practices and approaches throughout this this state. Then you have we have a phase two that was an in-depth study, um, basically was you know, the purpose was to examine the relationships between um, best practices and child and family outcomes. And we can share um, the, the findings from the study. Uh, we'll share it um, on the chat so you can learn more, more about it. And what's exciting now also is the expansion phase is happening now. And basically what is um, the goal is to identify effective and, uh, and scalable instructional Practices, professional development, family engagement, and, and, and in basically creating communities of practice. Um, so um, uh, a group of counties in California can learn from each other and really uh, share um, what works for, for DLLs and also 
where um, they are focusing on uh, strategies um, that um, happened uh, that were effective during COVID and that can help us to recover from the pandemic. So if you want to learn more, um, we'll share um, the the links to the studies um, so you can learn more about that. Then we have the preschool development grant, which is exciting too because it's going to include it includes a lot of DLLs, um, specific goals, including how to um, include DLLs in the QRS system, um, how to develop really strong professional development and funding requirements that include DLLs, um, and then also having um, how how do we inform families that so they they know. Um, about different options of care and also specifically about uh, how to support DLLs. And then also the, the preschool development grant is going to develop a platform that provides online and blended contents that includes, includes DLL. So as you can see, it's super exciting that DLLs are really um, important and um, were included in, in, the, in this project. And then um, the last one is the early educator investment collaborative collaborative grant, and this one um, it is um, uh, California uh, was a recipient of this of this grant, and um, basically um, it is uh, engaging a coalition of uh, California State University campuses, uh, community colleges, state agencies, and providers to, you know develop multiple goals around higher ed, but one of them is to revise the current ECE lead teacher curriculum with an emphasis on supporting DLLs, which again, it is super important um, for us because DLLs, in addition to develop a competency-based system, uh, address work diversity, DLLs are a center uh, piece of this, of this effort. Um, so that's all I have, and I think we're going to open it up to questions now. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Patricia, and also Delia and Maki. Um, so thanks to those of you who have been sending in questions, and uh, please keep them coming. Uh, any that we don't get to in the remaining time of the webcast, we'll respond to you um, uh, individually afterwards. Uh, but for now, I think Maki, I'll pitch you the um, uh, a question. Uh, well, it's amalgamation of a few questions, but could you just walk through a little bit the uh, kind of the way we're defining or what's behind some of the terms and why we use them uh, in terms of dual language learner versus English learner and then multilingual versus bilingual or dual language and emergent multilingual. We do have a little bit of an alphabet soup um, going on. <laughs> yes, um, thanks for that question, which is an important one. And I think I will say that um, DLL, the term dual language learner, I think we use because it's pervasively used. Um, I think in our view, it's meant to be inclusive of those who are exposed to more than two languages. And certainly I think captures the spirit of an emergent language learner, which I think is also intended to really emphasize that strengths-based emphasis. There are a lot of terms out there. I think the most important thing is that A, the term be standardized across systems, whatever term is chosen in a state, and B, that it be distinct from the term English learners, which really is intended for K-12 accountability and serving those who need support with English language skills 
I saw a question about this in the chat. I think, yes, all English learners are DLLs, but not all DLLs are English learners. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, I also love this question because of this issue of multilingualism. I think we didn't really get to talk about the context of super diversity in relation to this issue. Um, but, you know, the language profile across the US is changing quickly. Many previously low incidence language um, languages that were not represented in high numbers are growing in share. So it's it's going to be so important for us to find ways to support multilingual learners, regardless of whether their home language is supported by staff. Um, in many schools and classrooms, we see dozens of languages can be spoken, and this is just an important reality that we need to come to terms with. So this, again, is just another place where this identification piece is so critical in that districts and communities need to know who their families are, where they're from, what their language needs are, um, so that they can move beyond, you know, basic translation in maybe their top two languages of Spanish and Chinese, most likely, to make sure that even just basic language access needs are being met. Um, so I hope that that answers some of the, the confusion about the terminology. Great, thanks, Maki. Um, and then Delia, there's a few questions in here that are pretty specific. Um, well, actually, some of them are. Uh, one of them is really very broadly about uh, kind of how to think about assessments, um, but at the same time, um, given given how use of assessments quickly goes towards test results, you know, how do you strike the balance in the early childhood space? But then also a specific one that was um, talking about assessments that are early childhood language assessments or developmental assessments in a student's home language. So could you just say a little bit about um, about how uh, about the conversation, I guess, that we, you know, the uh, the conversations that we had um, with the various um, experts and state policy leaders around uh, where we arrived um, or how we were framing the assessment issue um, sure, in the framework. Sure. Uh, I, I'm going to start by uh, referring to the specific question. Someone asked if uh, we were talking about early childhood language assessments or developmental assessments in, uh, in students' um, native language. And we mean both. Uh, I think when it comes to assessment in, in young children, um, keeping in mind, and this is something we kept hearing from the experts and the practitioners, this is not measuring about measuring and labeling kids. This is about measuring, not even measuring, it's about determining what kids know. And uh, by default, that tells us where we need to go with what is um, what is set up as a curriculum in a particular state. So what children need to know is defined by school systems and in many cases by standards and early care systems. And so by knowing what children know, uh, we are able to figure out how to get them to what they don't know. Uh, when we talk about assessment of kids, we are not talking about test scores that would be used for accountability. We're really talking here, and we, we kept this in mind the entire time, about using assessments to determine, again, what children know, what their learning profile is like, what their developmental profile is like. Now, the, the, that takes us very quickly to what do you use to get there? Uh, I think we all acknowledge that the ideal assessments aren't out there yet. Uh, they're not out there in general for kids who are not dual language learners. And when it comes to dual language learners, we have a lot of development to do. 
we have in the past used assessments when it comes to language with kids to figure out if they're uh, English dominant, which is a controversial term, or uh, dominant in another language. For a lot of kids, they truly are emergent bilinguals and have um, have um, a whole world of language that is used in different contexts. So if you're really going to assess a child that young, well, you're going to want to know what they, what language they use in what context and what that has to do with the learning profile that a state has or um, uh, an early childhood system has developed. And so that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about labeling kids necessarily. We're not talking about holding schools accountable for language. We're talking about figuring out what kids know in what context and wh what that means for us as caregivers and educators. All right, well, so <laughs> um, I'm not surprised um, to see, because we circle back to this issue all the time. I don't know, um, Maki, Delia, or Patricia, um, which one of you would want to um, kind of speak about the process of, um, like, how do we get to the assessments that are reliable and valid in a child's home language? You know, because I know that's that's been an issue that folks have been talking about for, Gosh, I want to say even like 15 or 20 years at least. Well, I'll start and hope that my colleagues pick up. It's not going to be easy. I mean, this is something that still requires a great deal of research. It requires um, all of you in graduate school to decide to focus on this and start working with early childhood uh, providers to figure out how it is we do capture language. Uh, just from a technical point of view, it is difficult. I think it's going to look different in every state, depending on, as I said, what their what their instructional or academic values are and what parents want. Um, and I don't think we're going to anytime soon come up with a national assessment that's going to provide all these answers. Um, that's why I think it's important that states and parents define very well what their language and learning goals are. That was a cop out, but let me see if Maki and Patricia can. Add yeah, and more I to would that. just jump in and add that I think this is as much an implementation issue as it is a research and design issue. Um, Delia spoke to the need for professional development and um, just professional competency in this area. I think you know who is implementing an assessment matters just as much as what's written in that assessment. Um, you know, for example, in the issue of QRIS, even if you have an unresponsive instrument, although that's not ideal, um, if you have people who are interacting with providers who are able to culturally and linguistically translate that instrument in a way that can be understood and in a way that people can put their best strengths forward, that already goes a long way. And so I think developing the workforce that can really implement these assessments in a responsive way is also going to be critical and is also another opportunity, I think, right now as investments are flowing down into early childhood. Patricia, Delia, and um, Maki's comments are making me um, think about uh, how we, when we uh, were working um, on the framework, you know, there's the actual how to, but then there's the what, how, how that needs to be baked into a system. And uh, I know that you're right in the middle of all that in California, that these things are all intertwined. Um, Maki just raised the, 
the workforce issue related to assessments and, of course, workforce and linguistic and cultural competence just get threaded across trying to move on any of these issues. So, um, do you want to jump in? Because I know I know that in early edges work uh, and the work you're doing with others around uh, dual language learner issues, you know, you're you're having to think across a number of these um, these sort of pillars or, or aspects of um, system building. Yeah, sure. And yeah, I, I agree that we have to find the, the best way to support the workforce because especially in California, we have such a diverse um, group of of students um, <clears throat> multilingual that we really want to think about how do we best support both um, the teachers who are working with them and also the families so they feel, um, you know, uh, confident and uh, um, that this is something that is good that is going to help their their child that it's uh, it's asset based because um, you know in the past we've had um, parents who experienced that have doing being an English learner was was not something that was perceived as an asset so what our goal is to really think about of a framework around this is that this is something that's going to help children that's going to help the child. So, um, you know, during that identification process, it's so important to really uh, frame it like that and, and, and have the parent feel comfortable sharing their information as something that will um, help their child to learn and will create an environment where uh, the teacher and the administrators are going to receive the training to be able to, um, you know, create an environment that is welcoming, that is inclusive, and in terms of the assessments too, right? It's, it's all about equity and how do we build it so it's fair and we really take in consideration all the different cultures uh, that we have. And also, also how do we really, how do we assess um, where the kid is at depending of where they're coming from and the languages they're, they're being exposed. And we really push into have DLL trainings as part of any, you know, certification permit treat uh, higher ed uh you know programs so it is comprehensive so that's you know part as, as advocates really thinking about the system and how this should be just integrated um so both the teachers and the parents um really understand and have all the tools to to make it happen great uh, so I thought I would um, I would uh, take the question that was asking about how to increase access uh, to education for parents, uh, just because that uh, that kind of that circles back to the analysis that I, I mentioned very early on in the webcast um, that we had put out in April that takes a two generation lens um, looking at the impacts of COVID and how impacts at the household level. Um, uh, uh, also sh should be understood uh, and, um, and part of the frame that's being used to try and support children, whether they're uh, in the early, uh, early childhood space or in the, um, in the K, K-8 in particular, just because uh, in the context of COVID, a lot of kids in, um, in high school and, and very often in middle school um, were they're not they're not as reliant on their parents for um uh for engaging uh in distance learning or things like that um 
But in any event, I would, I would just flag, um, I don't know how many of you are following the Biden um, executive order. The 1st executive order that the president signed when he came into office on January 20th has to do with looking at ways that the federal government um, may be in, uh, uh, impeding or um, should be advancing equity. Uh, in all of its uh, its various um, policy and program activities, and there's a request for information that the Office of Management and Budget put uh, put out that we're currently taking data like that, which we presented today on dual language learners, and also this data that we did looking at um, at parents of farm born and native born children. Uh, to try and um, make the case that we're working with some really old system designs here. Um, and I would say we also had a question from someone running a family literacy program asking if there are culturally relevant early childhood assessments she could be using because uh, the funders want to know that they're preparing three to five year olds for pre-K and kindergarten success. Well, family literacy programs um, are actually at the federal level only judged on whether on the employment outcomes that the parents who are in them achieve, and there's nothing related, no credit for um, for working uh, working on behalf of having a, from a two generation perspective, having a child be better prepared for pre K. So um, I think the you know we we've really got some equity issues there with adult education programs um, finding it much more difficult now to be able to be helpful in the early childhood space and the early childhood space. Um, really not including family challenge um, indicators that um, that would be, I, I would say, pushing systems to more proportionately share, address their linguistic and cultural competence issues um, in terms of reaching families in a more proportionate proportionate way and the like. So um, I would just say that the um, that whether your state is using a two generation a dual language learner um, or a uh, a kind of poverty plus lens that there are lots of equity arguments to be made that actually it's easy to put math underneath um, if you you know just looking at the data we were presenting today and then attaching a, a lot of these policy proposals to you know it's not it's not like the dual language learner uh, population became 30 33% of all US children yesterday. This is something that's been happening underway for decades and uh, very and and we just um, you know we may there may be an opportunity um, now in a way there hasn't been um, in a good number of years to try and uh, to try and have systems adapt to the new demographic reality of the country. Um, so with that, I'll just apologize for any questions uh, we weren't able to get to. Promise that we will follow up with you individually. Um, uh, invite you all to please take a closer look at all the um, initiatives and uh, reports and data that we presented on today, uh, because we um, and know that we are all uh, very eager to hear your reactions and help in whatever we, way we can as folks are uh, trying to move forward. Um, efforts and arguments around these issues. Oh, one last question was about indigenous language. We um, we do have that data, and it just isn't as easy to present at the national level. So, if you would like data related to dual language learners who speak uh, tribal or indigenous languages, uh, please write to us directly about that. All right, thank you so much. Thank you to our speakers and Patricia. Thank you so much for um, for joining us as a guest. Um, fantastic to hear about all your work. 
and uh, best wishes to all of you who are out there in the field trying to move forward on these issues. So long. <laughs>